Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let Mom's Green Thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give Mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com, to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I'm Steve Letarte, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer, delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Greetings. Welcome to the NASCAR NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan. We've got a good episode, so I want to get right to it. We'll get started with Trevor Bain, the 2011 Daytona 500 winner, who is in his second full season in Sprint Cup. It's been quite the ride through NASCAR for Trevor. He burst onto the scene out of nowhere, won the biggest race in the series in only his second start, and was cast as the next big star in Sprint Cup. And then he disappeared into the wilderness for a few years. There was a lack of funding that kept him from being on track as much as he wanted. There were a series of medical problems that resulted in an eventual diagnosis of MS. And there was just frustration from not getting the results that many were expecting from him after winning the biggest race in NASCAR. But he persevered, and he has been one of the most improved drivers in Sprint Cup this season with Roush Fenway Racing. Trevor is very candid about what it's been like going through all of those struggles, and he also shares some good insight into what his life is like as a new father. After Trevor, we've got Danica Patrick. She was in Chicago this week to promote a new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Nickelodeon sponsorship. Yes, you heard that correctly, which of course is aimed at a youthful audience. And Danica provided a lot of good insight on why she appeals to kids, what NASCAR might do to hook that demographic, and how her season is going with new crew chief Billy Scott. And finally, we've got my coworker Dustin Long, who is on site for NBC Sports Digital at Bristol and Richmond. Dustin provides his observations on what Carl Edwards' win streak means at Joe Gibbs Racing and how Tony Stewart seemed to really enjoy his comeback. As always, we are seeking feedback on potential guests. You can reach me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan. We appreciate you listening, and if you like what you hear, please rate us and leave a review on iTunes. And many thanks as well to Scott Keith for helping coordinate the Trevor Bain interview, and producers Joel Madak and Tess Quinlan for helping in keeping this podcast rolling along. And with that, without further ado... Here's Trevor Bain. All right, Trevor joins us now here at the NASCAR on NBC podcast studios, which you're the first guest, by the way, in this room. So that makes me feel honored. I, yeah, I'm, sh- I'm sure. I just you thought do. you haven't invited me the last couple of years you guys have been here. So <laughs> at least I'm not the only one. Thankfully, um, th- there was no podcast until this year because I, I probably was not ready for to take on this this type of endeavor. But um, anyway, I appreciate you stopping by uh, and and indulging us uh, on a day when you've already done a lot for NASCAR America. You're going to be on the show later today, so we appreciate that. You had the big car unveiling today, and uh, let's just—I guess we just start there briefly. I mean, we were just talking about it. The number six that you'll be driving at Darlington uh, has some sentimental value to you. It does. Uh, when that paint scheme came out, it was 1996. Uh, that's when I was really 
just becoming a huge NASCAR fan. It's the first year that I started racing. I was five years old, so I was pretty young, so it's hard to remember all the races, but uh, you know, it's <laughs> cool that that's the year that I started racing, and now I get to drive the paint scheme of Mark Martin, who I looked up to in a big way, uh, and that paint scheme was pretty fast and wanted a, a variety of racetracks from a road course to a super speedway to a one-mile to a, a two-mile track. So he won four races, I think, with that car in 97, so uh, it's, it's got some speed in it. Yeah, I think he won seven or eight in 98. I mean, of course, Gordon yeah. doesn't win the championship those two years. Those those might be the two seasons that Mark Martin wins that elusive title. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I got to run the 98 paint scheme last year. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're running the 96, 97 this year. And it's, it's an honor, you know, to drive the actual throwback. It probably feels weird that that's a throwback scheme, even for, for like <laughs> right. you. You said you started covering that year. So yeah. it's kind of weird that in your lifetime, you get to see a throwback of something that you covered. But uh, even for me being 25, we were talking about how I kind of feel like I'm becoming one of the older guys now that I see some of the youth coming into the sport. But uh, it's an honor for me to drive that paint scheme is what I was getting at with Jack Rowe to have been a fan of that six car and for that to be the, the same six car you know jack's been around for a long time and to be in that car now it's, it's a huge honor and i took a look at uh the photo today trevor and I looked at the colors and it really is i mean it's it looks like the valvoline scheme i remember so the qu- next question i would have would be i haven't asked too many guys about this how do you approach advocate on that are, are they just on board especially after the first year that they just understand hey this is the deal it's a throwback tell us what you want to do and we're going to sign off on it. yeah i mean it worked out perfect because that's their colors right red white and blue right. and then uh, so it matched their deal um a lot of the the family that were part of the founding of advocate the the regus family and um the cooks buddy cook and debbie cook they're huge NASCAR fans, so they get it, and they were actually really excited about it last year at Darlington, the Red Wheels, the whole deal, and so I think uh, they get the nostalgia of it, and uh, they like the way it turned out. I mean, I think both of our throwback schemes have turned out perfect. It's not like it's a green car with Advocare, something that didn't really make sense. It really lined up perfect, and uh, for Mark to kind of give his blessing on it and Jack to do the same, and I mean, there's a lot of guys at our shop that worked on that car the first time it came right. through. Jimmy Finnig still seeing over our Super Speedway program and are overseeing it, and and, uh, you know, he was, I believe, the crew chief on that car. He was, so it's, yeah. it's pretty cool to, uh, cool. I bet that's weird for him, especially. <laughs> yeah, I think about how weird it is for, for me. And like you said, that's when I remember when I started covering NASCAR. You, you're five years old. But for Jimmy Fennig, who actually worked on it and won <laughs> races with it, that must be, I mean, almost 20 years later to, to have it come all, all full circle. Um, one more question on that. Have you... Do you know, will Mark be there Darlington weekend or do you know? I've not heard yet. I don't believe he is. Uh, He's probably enjoying his retirement, which I I don't blame him one bit. (laughs) uh, He deserves it. Definitely. Uh, Well, speaking of enjoying yourself and Mark Martin, obviously a guy who does, was famous for his physical fitness. And I I did a little research on you and I understand that you've become a little bit of a a, a training nut, a, a biker or in triathlon type type stuff. Tell us about what you're doing there. Yeah, I um I wanted to find out the best form of fitness that I could do during the weeks that matches up to what I do in the race car. Um, you know, I've always said you don't have to bench press 400 pounds to be a NASCAR driver. It's not like you need to be the strength of an offensive lineman or, um, you know, you don't have to sprint. You don't have to be a sprinter, somebody that can do 100 meters or a 40 meter um, dash really fast, but what you've got to be able to do is last three and a half, four hours in the race car at temperatures up to 150 um, degrees. You know, we saw, I think Kyle Larson had that thermometer in his car at Indy last year and it got that hot. Um, and then you look at our heart rates and sometimes I wear my, my heart rate monitor in the car and I average under green flag about 150 beats a minute. So when I looked at that, I was like, what would be the best form of training for that? What would be enjoyable that I could do on the road? find places to do it. And for me, that was kind of the triathlon style training, something Jimmy Johnson has been doing for years now. And obviously he's been pretty successful. So, and seems to be one of the most fresh guys out of the race car. He doesn't look like he's going to pass out. And so I've kind of pursued that Josh Wise, Landon Castle, or some other guys that have been doing that pretty strong. And there's some crew members in the garage that are really strong cyclists. But uh, this year for me, I've really focused on the run uh, part of the triathlon stuff. The swims a little bit harder to find places to go on the weekend and Honestly, kind of like Michael Phelps said, he doesn't miss jumping into those cold pools. So <laughs> if he doesn't miss it, I definitely don't miss it. Right. Uh, so for me, the bike, the sw- um, the run, uh, I kind of shoot. Right now, my goal is around 25 miles a week. So it's not huge. I'm still fresh when I get in the race car, but it's enough that I'm mimicking what I do in the race car. And, and I feel way better. Um, the other side of the fitness part is that Advocare is my sponsor, right? So if I'm going to represent their product, then I need to be pushing myself and seeing what their product can do. And 
Um, you know, we're losing five to 10 pounds of water weight in the race car. So they're rehydrate products, spark. Um, I could go down a list of about 20 Advocare products that I take that, that really have helped me perform better. Gotcha. Uh, you mentioned Jimmy and, uh, I know that you are familiar with, with Strava. The oh, app. Yeah. <laughs> I am as well. He, I don't know if you know this, but he did a thing at Daytona where he, he started this group for media members where a few of us who run regularly are, are part of that. So we, we kind of are keeping tabs on him, but I understand you are keeping tabs on him the same way. Are you keeping up with, uh, yeah, with I'm actually, yeah. I believe I've run quite a bit more than him this year, but really? he's spending a lot of hours on the bike. So <laughs> we went out on a ride in Vegas and it was, it was tough, you know, it was a 35 mile loop with quite a bit of elevation and stuff, but those guys are next level cyclists. And, uh, for me having a, a four month old baby and my wife with me on the road, I kind of feel bad leaving for three hours on the weekend when they've already been there waiting on me to get done with practice. So I feel like running is kind of the most efficient way you tie up your shoes and take off and you can go run for an hour, get six to eight miles in and you're good for the day. So, um, I've kind of, that's why I focused on the run and I've always been a terrible runner my whole life right. uh, <laughs> as far as endurance. I've been, you know, I played football and stuff like that, but for endurance running, I just never was good. So, uh, I've kind of pushed it this year and, and I feel way better. I feel like I'm making gains. And honestly, I feel better when I get out of the race car and that's what it's all about. I'm the same way. I, I never ran until almost four years ago. And then I just started running on a treadmill and then it progressed to running outside and I didn't I don't think people realize that like hey you can just go out and start running start you know modestly two three miles yeah. and eventually you can get to five six seven that's 11, right and half marathon it's and it's like you said you just you feel so much better when you do it you you really do and uh, I kind of got off track there with my running I guess for the last couple of years and and at no at Talladega last November I was like you know what I'm gonna focus on running that's what I'm gonna do and I started just a couple miles a day and at Texas a couple of weeks ago, I did a half marathon before the race, not an actual one, but just out running around the racetrack and I felt great. So, I mean, yeah. the fact that you can go from zero to a, a 13 mile run in a few months is, is kind of fun. And I think it's fun for other people to, to check out, especially on Strava. So if you're on there, I'll have to, yeah. have to find you. And it's a lot of accountability. You know, it if is. I get on, it I'm is. like, crap, yeah. Jimmy rode, you know, 40 miles today. I got to go out on a run or even Matt Kenseth now is getting into it pretty heavily. So uh, those guys are fun. And, and I went on a run with Josh Wise this morning. He's helping me a lot with my training. And, and uh, I think he's kind of enjoying that coaching mentality and kind of right. helping people get started. So it's a lot of fun. Now, I, I know health-wise, obviously, a, a couple of years ago, you, you went through a period and then you got diagnosed with, with was it MS? Was, it, was it was, yes, sir. And does that affect you at all? Or does it does it help in terms of like, med, <laughs> you know, med, I guess, remedying that condition? Yeah, or? you know, and, and I've always been kind of hesitant on the diagnosis and everything. And, mm -hmm. and I still, you know, we went back and forth, Lyme's MS, and there was a whole, you know, those are closely related and it's right. hard to define that. And, and some days I still question it because I'm like, man, I haven't had one thing wrong yeah. you know since 2011 and without that one incident i'd never know if anything was going on so i'm thankful that the lord's kind of sustained my body through that i i haven't had to take one bit of medicine i haven't had to do anything different i haven't had to take it easier in the car easier on my training i mean i've pushed myself really hard and haven't had an issue so i'm really thankful for that and thankful that god's kind of sustained me through that and been able to do everything i want to do and on top of everything else you got going on as you mentioned you're also father of a, a four-month-old <laughs> yeah. so that that must that keep you busy as well that you know? is uh very busy i don't <laughs> uh, it's uh you want to make sure you're ready I, I always tell my friends i'll always pressure them to get married because I, I love being married and and i get on to them they've had girlfriends for you know five years but i'm like <laughs> Guys, I will never pressure you into having kids. It is the greatest, <laughs> the greatest thing in the world, but you better make sure you're ready when you have a kid. So, um, you know, I, I think having a baby has been awesome for me. It gives you a lot of understanding for what your parents go through and a lot of understanding in a lot of ways, just what, you know, unconditional love for somebody and, and taking care of them. And uh, Ellie's a great baby and Ashton's a great mom, so they make it pretty easy on me. But I'm telling you, those first six weeks when you were sleep deprived, right. and I would highly recommend off-season babies for anybody in NASCAR because you're you're liable to lose your temper at the racetrack <laughs> if you're dealing with a newborn. But uh, she's ever since like six weeks, she hit about nine pounds and she started sleeping great. And, and like I said, Ashton does amazing with her. But um, it is people tell you they're like, it's the hardest thing, but the best thing. And you really don't get it until you have your own and then yeah. you understand. So 
and I, I understand as well that your crew chief, Matt Pusha, apparently also, <laughs> a, 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 is he first time father as well? He is. Okay. Yes, sir. So that must be something you both can relate to yeah, each other he, about. Huh? It's like every Tuesday at our meetings, you know, he and I sit there and he'll talk about Kennedy and I'll talk about Ellie. They're only a couple months apart and he's, he's a couple months ahead of me. So oh, he's really? kind of telling me what's coming next, you know, and it's funny. He'll show me things. And I'm like, man, I can't wait till Ellie does that. And then next thing you know, she's doing it. And I'm like, slow down a little bit here. We're not trying to wish your life away. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's really fun talking to him about it. And, uh, you know, Matt and I, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about that, but he's, uh, he's been great to work with and we enjoy talking about that also. Yeah. Let's, well, let, let's, let's talk about that, Trevor. Cause I'm, I'm sure it's not just about the commonality of both being dads, but that, that probably can't hurt in terms of breaking the ice and, and building that rapport, which we always hear is so important in a driver crew chief relationship. It's huge. It really is. At this day and time when every ounce, every, you know, half round on a jack screw changes your race car, you've got to be able to read each other and you got to be on the same page. Um, you know, I've always been a driver that's probably given too much information and not been clear with what I needed, but Matt's really helping me with that. I feel like, uh, our relationship, and it started with being able to talk about our kids. We have a relationship to where we're in it together. Our team's in it together, whether it be anybody on my team or Matt or myself. We're able to hold each other accountable. We're able to learn together and uh, not get defensive. You know, that's what you see a lot in racing are people that um, can be a little bit overconfident or, or not willing to learn or not willing to say that they were wrong. And, um, you know, through the struggles of the last couple of years, I've learned a lot of humility and a lot of appreciation for the days when we have good race cars. And I think that's helping me this year to, when we have good runs, be appreciative for those runs. And when we struggle to, to be humble and work through those things with my race team and same for Matt, same for every guy on my race team, they've all been through it together. And, uh, I, I just really like what we have going on. Our communication is really good. Um, still something we're working on to be better at. We're not perfect. And, you know, this weekend we had a hiccup on the radio where we kind of got confused with what adjustment we should make and, and we'll have to continue to do that. And even the best in the sport do that. But I feel like, uh, Matt is just a really detailed guy. He understands, like I said, that every little bit of, you know, bump, stop, shim, or every bit of jack screw turn. I mean, it all matters and adds up and, um, they're doing a really good job. How, how does a driver give too much information? I don't think I've heard that one before. You know, you can you can break down your car and you can go through. I, I basically pour my brain out onto the table every time I come in from practice or every time I, you know, get on the radio. And sometimes it's hard for a crew chief to sift through that and say, okay, well, what's the most important? What's what's really causing the speed issue? The car may feel like it's rolling over on entry, but is that causing a, a balance issue that's hurting our speed? And so I really work through a lot of the corner and a lot of the racetrack. And, and where I've got to do better is just identifying the biggest issue and saying, okay, let's work on that first, especially a place like Bristol, Richmond, where you only have a split second to talk about what you need. Right. I'm still kind of talking on the radio and we're already coming down pit road trying to get an adjustment in the car. So just being concise, being direct about what you need. And then uh, later after the race or, or after practice, I should say, um, you can kind of go through the smaller fine print details. Interesting. Well, it's, it's somewhat weird just to think about you still progressing and still developing because I think it's easy for us sometimes to lose sight of the fact that yes, five years ago you burst on the scene, win the Daytona 500, but since then, as you mentioned, it's it's been up and down it has. Um, quite, quite a bit. <laughs> I mean, maybe sometimes this gets overlooked that we we don't think about everything. I mean, so you're 25 now, but you've spent essentially what this is second full season in Cup, but yet you've sort of been in Cup for almost going on six years. I've got a very strange career, I guess, so far. And, (laughs) and shoot, I feel like the first two years, you know, going from a victory to being in the hospital and going through all the stuff we went through, I was like, man, we just went through 10 seasons worth of drama (laughs) in like a year. So now five, six years later, um, you know, it is crazy to think about. This is only my second full-time season in Sprint Cup. I had a part-time season and that's very tough to progress and get better when you're running part-time. It's just uh, how it goes. I mean, for anybody that's at the track once every three, four weeks, it's hard to get better as a driver and to keep up with what everybody else is learning. And the thing we have to remember is that even guys like Jimmy, even guys like Kevin Harvick, Carl Edwards, they're still getting better. They didn't stop learning. They didn't stop getting better at driving the race cars or learn how to manipulate the car to make faster lap times. You know, they didn't stop doing that five, six years ago. So you're trying to catch guys that are great, that are getting better. Right. And uh, so I'm pushing myself to do that. And uh, my team's helping me do that. You can't do anything without good race cars. And 
that's finally what we're doing better this season. Um, I feel like as a driver, you know, I feel like this season I'm doing a lot of the same things that I did last year. Um, last year when we were off, I really looked at what I do as a driver. I looked at my feedback. I looked at my post-race notes, um, everything that I do. And I tried to break it down to a science and say, where am I missing it at? You know, if I'm the problem here, what am I doing wrong? And, uh, so that's helped me really refine what I do as a driver. But, uh, this year, you know, like I said, I, I feel like maybe I'm making some less mistakes, but as far as raw speed and ability to go out and qualify well, or ability to run well at the end of the race, that's all to my guys that are making faster race cars at the shop. Um, chassis, bodies, engines, the whole deal. So I'm just, uh, I'm really thankful that I've got an opportunity to drive race cars that we can contend with. It's refreshing. It's hard to go through those seasons where yeah. you don't have speed. It beats you down, makes you question stuff and makes you work hard. But uh, in the end, it makes you appreciate the good days that we're having now. And, and I think we're just going to get better. Um, I think Matt and I will get better. I think Roush Fenway as a group, we're not content running top 15. We want to be winning races and be where, you know, Joe Gibbs and those organizations are at right now. Uh, and obviously you guys have, have made some, some strides toward that, uh, w- with both you and Ricky Stenhouse Jr. and Greg Biffle, you guys have all had certainly signs that things are turning around and, and head in the right direction. But I, I want to take people back, uh, Trevor, people who might be listening for the first time to you talk about your NASCAR career. Uh, I, I went back and looked at, at what was said after that Daytona 500 win five years ago, just to kind of <laughs> get a sense before we did this interview of like, because I remember being there and it's. Trevor was the, the the youngest winner of the Daytona 500 ever. 20 years, what, two days after your 20th uh, One birthday? day. Yeah, one day after day. his 20th birthday. <laughs> and his second start ever in Sprint Cup. And wins with this storied organization, the Wood Brothers, who hadn't won the Daytona 500, I think, in since 76, I think was the last Something time. Like yeah. yeah. And so all of these things happened <laughs> uh, in February of 2011. And I was looking back at, at some of the details. You, you drove your... F-150 pickup truck to that race and then <laughs> got whisked away on the, the media tour and had to have, I'm sure somebody else drive it, drive yeah. it back. It was, it was a whirlwind of an experience. And then within two months, you started to have the health problems and, and things kind of got nutty for a, a few months. Did When you look back on that experience, did it all, I mean, as quickly as it arrived, did it almost fade away almost as, as fast? And is it weird just to think back on where, where things were five years ago? It was, first of all, it was crazy to have that opportunity to win a race. I mean, I remember being on the plane the next day, flying to Connecticut or wherever we were headed. We were, fl- I mean, I went to, I think we went 35 days straight on a media tour. Didn't come home. Wow. We went to like five, six states in one day, the second day after winning the 500. And I remember being on that first plane ride and I looked down and I saw the ring on my finger and I was like, man, this, this is real. Like, yeah. this is the same thing that, <laughs> right. you know, Dell Earnhardt and all these guys put on their finger. This is the same kind of ring that, that they, you know, they won. And, and it's unreal to think that we had won that race. Um, but I didn't really change my expectations going forward as to what we were going to be capable of. Um, setting goals is very important in racing not just because you want to get better, but also because when you get to the racetrack, you got to be realistic every week. I think uh, when I won that race, a lot of people didn't understand the concept of restrictor plate racing, the fact that it was tandem and that, you know, a lot of people had an opportunity to win the race. It wasn't about your cars as much as being in the right place at the right time and making smart moves to position yourself for that. Um, It wasn't like being able to drive it into the corner at Texas and the front end work and turn and come back off the next corner. So a lot of people were, you know, on that media tour were saying, man, you're going to win the championship. You know, you're going to yeah. win every race. You're going to, how are you going to do at Phoenix next week? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I've never raced there in a cup car and it's a handling racetrack. And so I tried to minimize that, um, you know, what the expectation was going forward. Um, but I feel like, you know, that I had done things at other tracks that we could have high expectations. I just knew where we were as a team. Um, so I feel like I was able to meet some of those goals throughout the season. Charlotte later that year, we were running third and run out of gas. I mean, had a shot to win that race. Um, there were a lot of things, um, Vegas, I think three races later, we were running seventh and I spit on pit road. So I just had a lot to learn as a driver. And I feel like I've learned a lot since then. Um, but it, it is tough to see what it's like to win races and to be like, you know, the guy of NASCAR or whatever, you know, that Kyle Busch and Carl and those guys are now. And then to go through a couple seasons where you really struggle and to see what it's like to yeah. be at the very bottom, you know, what Clint Boyer is going through this season. Right. If you look at Clint Boyer, he's not a worse driver this year. I can promise you that. Right. He could jump in a Stuart Haas car and go, you know, next year he's going to probably contend to be in the chase and win races or whatever. It, it's so hard for people to understand in NASCAR what kind of a team aspect it is and all the components that go on in NASCAR. Um, 
if you're watching a football team, you can see if a quarterback is doing his job and the receiver is not catching the ball. You can see if the receiver is doing his job, but the quarterback's not throwing it there. It's very hard to diagnose what the issue is in NASCAR as to what's going on. Is it the driver? Is it the team? And I'm not passing the buck at all because I had a lot to learn as a driver and I still do. Yeah. But I feel like I'm finally in the right situation where we can meet the goals, meet the expectations of the people of their fans of NASCAR and that we can go and do our job the right way. Yeah. And not to sell you short at all, because despite all that tandem drafting and everything that happened in 2011, I can remember distinctly Jeff Gordon saying like, I knew this kid was going to be good during speed weeks. Cause I could tell the way he was racing around me. He, he could handle it. I'd love and to go back to tandem racing. Just yeah. so you, know, so. <laughs> you, you took to it quicker than I, a lot I of loved other guys it. did. I loved yeah. it. So you kind of had your own control of your own destiny there. And now with this form of super speedway racing, you're kind of in the middle of a pack and you don't mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. And hopefully you make the right move and the whole field goes with you. If you make the wrong move and nobody goes with you, you finish last. So yeah. I really enjoyed tandem, even though a lot of people didn't. Yeah. So yeah. Well, <laughs> obviously the result shows NASCAR for it, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and your, your analogy on football is well taken. Cause I, I tell people all the time when I'm watching racing, I mean, I cover racing, but like there's nuances and things you guys do in the car that mere mortals such as ourselves are just we're never going to be able to pick up on and understand it and when we see you go through i, I know 2012 I, I would presume that might have been one of your your tougher seasons and I, I think a lot of people were probably wondering at that point man is is he is he gonna break through is he gonna make it and again we're looking through it through an untrained eye we don't know what's going on with you but i'm sure for you it was tough because at that time i think you had 20 two starts that year. So, mm -hmm. so the, the amount of time for you to be on the track to show people what you were going to do was, was limited. How, how was that in terms of getting through a season like that? And, and did you ever feel like it, it, it might not happen? You know, I, I wish I would have enjoyed that season more. Um, it's one of those seasons where I look at it and say, I was just looking forward to the next season the whole year because I knew 2013 would be full-time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was watching Ricky have the opportunity to go out and win the Xfinity Championship, and I wanted to be out there in one of Jack's cars, and uh, the sponsorship didn't line up. I don't feel like we were ready when we won the 500 to go out and receive and go fight for all the sponsorship dollars and do all the right things. And nobody could have been prepared for that. It's not pointing the finger at anybody. But, um, you know, 2012 was tough because I only ran, I think, maybe six or seven Xfinity races right. and ran part-time for the Wood Brothers. Uh, we ran the first four or five Xfinity races, and I think we were like second or third in points. So we were right there with Ricky, and um, then we had to pull the plug because no funding. And uh, we went to Bristol later that year and sat on the pole and ran top ten, I believe. And so we had some good races there in Xfinity, but the cup side, you know, we, we weren't as fast. We, we uh, I would say Roush Fenway was kind of had reached their peak in 2011 and we were kind of headed toward where we ended up in 2006, 2015. And uh, now we're rebounding from that, fortunately. But um, that year, I wish I would have enjoyed the off time a little bit because hmm. I, I wasn't going to get any more races no matter yeah. how much I worried about it. <laughs> yeah. um, I could have enjoyed the weekends that I had that I won't have for the next 15 or 20 years. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I say, well, look, we should enjoy the current situation we're in more right now because we're either going to look back at it in five years and say, man, that was a tough year, but now I'm here. I'm in a better situation and I should have enjoyed that. Or we're going to say, man, that was the best opportunity I ever had. I wish I would have enjoyed it because I don't get to do that anymore. And uh, so for me, that's one of those years I look back at it and say that I wish I would have enjoyed that one more. Um, and just, you know, run the part-time schedule with the Wood Brothers, run my few Xfinity races and go and make the best of them. Um, and, and I could probably say that I'll probably say that about this season when I get done with it, right. but, um, that's just how we are as competitive people. We always want to be doing more and doing better and, um, you know, be out there every weekend. And, and so much of it, of course, Trevor is dependent on, on sponsorship. And I know in your case, you know, you get through 12, you get back to full-time in 13 and then, and then you hook up with the Advocare sponsorship. And is that, do you feel like, I mean, you probably showed the talent to get the cup, but so much of it, again, is just having yes. the right sponsor alignment. Do you feel like that was that the key to getting you into Cup full-time? Yeah, I mean, that's what we were waiting on from the beginning, right? Yeah. So with Jack, after we won in 2011, uh, I think 2012, we would have been running full-time had we had funding for that. Or 2013, we would have been full-time in Sprint Cup. Even with the Wood Brothers in 2011, we started out, ran the first few races, and ran out of funding, basically, and only could run a few more. So... Um, I think the Wood Brothers would have loved to have been doing what they're doing now with Ryan Blaney back then if they had the funding. Um, so it all comes down to that at the end of the day. Um, and for me, I've been really blessed and really fortunate for Advocare to come along. It's the only sponsor I've had on my car for the last three years, and that's pretty incredible. 
Um, I don't know that there's any other brand out there that's been that committed to a driver and, and had a relationship like that where they've been on the car every weekend. Um, we obviously see primary sponsors out there. You know, I think about the 11 and 48, and they most of the time they have the same sponsor, but there's a couple races here and there where they're different. And um, Advocare just said, we want them all. We want to do the whole thing. And um, the way that came about was really kind of crazy. You know, you go and you beat the door down of all these companies and you're chasing sponsors and and something like this pops up where you don't expect it. And for me, it was at driver intros at Atlanta when they sponsored the race. I walked by, took my sunglasses off, shook Richard Wright's hand and said, hey, you know, I use your product. I really appreciate you being here and walked off the stage. And that was it. Huh. And uh, he started checking into me a little bit. And Mike Vault, who was the uh, um, sports marketing director at that time, kind of called and said he wanted to do some endorsement stuff. And at the time I was working with uh, another company that was talking about sponsoring the car. But so uh, it kind of conflicted a little bit. And um, I told Mike, you know, I'd love to, to represent it, but it's hard to, to block out a sponsorship deal for a personal deal. So we need to think about it. And uh, six months later, they kind of came back and said, hey, we want to we want to sponsor your race car if that's what it takes to be a part of this. And wow. so I was really thankful for that. And now after getting to know the people of Advocare, the distributors, the, the you know, the corporate um, people that work there in the offices and then the family that started it. It's, uh, it's been a really fun relationship and hopefully something that goes on for a long time. You know, you, you think about Jeff Gordon and DuPont, that doesn't happen anymore. And so that's kind of how this is for me. And um, I'm really enjoying it. And I think we're uh, making them a little more happy this season with our results. And so um, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. It's running well and representing their company well. And it might have been it might have been just as simple as you shook that the hand of it was, was Richard Wright. You said he was, was the president, president of the company. Okay. So just it just name exactly. with the face and that that's exactly. what did it. Wow. So and and you know it's crazy how it worked out because five months before that I wouldn't have known what Abicare was, but I was on a bike ride with my friend uh, Blake cook that races in Xfinity handed me a rehydrate gel and I took it on the bike ride because I was worn out and I was like man this stuff's a pretty good product like what is this so I started taking Advocare and so before they were ever on my race car I was taking their product and then just right. happened to meet the president of the company and say two words to him and and it kind of lined up from there so <laughs> after all the beating down the door is something like that yeah. just a relationship you know it's I tell people and young drivers all the time how important relationships are and how you never know who you're talking to. Not that that matters. You don't want to treat people different if you did know who you're talking to. But uh, for me, some of my biggest breaks in racing have come from relationships and most of the time from talking to people that I didn't know who or what they did. So yeah. um, it's just, I've been really fortunate with that. If only it were that simple always, just to right. just make friends with a guy at a company and say, hey, you want to put him be on my race car? Sure. <laughs> so um, obviously we know it's not that simple and I don't want to oversimplify how you're, you've improved this year, but I did notice that qualifying I think you're an average starting spot that's like 10 positions higher than yeah. 2000. Is it, is it sometimes just that simple? Hey, if, if we start better, we're going to finish better. We're going to do better. Track yeah. position is so huge, but uh, I think that just shows our speed of our car. So yeah. I don't think necessarily qualifying is in, influenced our finishes hugely, um, but it does help and it does show that we have speed. So, um, you know, you look at California and last year, I think we were a second and a couple tenths off the pole. And this year we had a shot at the pole and qualified seventh. And I'm like, man, that's a huge improvement. I think we probably improved more at Roush Fenway Racing in six months or in the off season, more than I expected. I expected to be really not struggling, but it to be hard fought to get a top 15, you know, the first half of the season. And then we'd move that goal up. But right now I feel like any given week, if we do all of our jobs, right, if I don't have any penalties on pit road, if I don't make any mistakes in the racetrack, I get every position possible. Um, you know, if Matt makes all the right pit calls and we have good pit stops, we can run top 10, you know, most of these weekends when I look at it, even Richmond, we finished 17th and, uh, you know, there were some things in the race that, you know, he and I did on adjustments and then, pit stops and just all the little small components, the details that I was talking about earlier, if we do those right, we could finish 12th. And so, um, you know, we just, that's where we got to keep moving our performance up at. And, uh, it's just nice to have race cars that have speed in them when we unload and we can work on them and, and now focus on the fine things versus changing everything in the race car, trying to chase an invisible speed that we couldn't find, you know? Right, right, right. Uh, Texas certainly proved that if you get in the right position, you guys can win a race. I know that was a little yep. bit of a gamble, but uh, you get the top 15 there and then you back it up the next week with, with Bristol getting that fifth place. What did, what did that mean? I guess like, cause I'm sure you heard a lot of people say, well, Texas, they were just out front because they gambled and they, they led some laps, but then we knew they had no chance right. to run fifth the next week. Must've felt good. Yeah. And I think people don't understand the full race at Texas really, if they say that, because 
we were running seventh, I think, when we started the pit cycle. If you look at lap times early in the race, I almost unlapped myself where we, we got off at the beginning of the race and fell back, lost a lap. But about halfway through, I actually ran down the 78 and almost unlapped myself before the caution came out. Got the lucky dog, started at the very back of the field and drove up to 10th or, or actually we got the 7th there eventually. And, um, you know, Matt thought we had probably a 4th to 5th place race car. Um, the 78 at the time and the 18 were a little better than we were. They had adjusted their car and gotten better. Um, but we were like, Hey, you know what, if we can do a one stop race versus a two stop race from this point, then we'll have a shot to win the race or maybe a second place finish, which is really cool. Um, and even if we don't, then, you know, we pit and whatever happens, we can get back up to the top 10 and, uh, it just worked out horribly. Like the, right. the caution fell at right. the exact, there were 10 lap, there was a 10 lap window where the caution couldn't come out. It couldn't come out from the time we pitted until the time they pitted. And there was only a 10 lap window and it fell right when we pitted. <laughs> so we were like, oh, you got to be kidding me. But that's how racing goes. Yeah. And uh, we had pitted, lost our lap, took the wave around and uh, actually worked our way back up the eighth spot when the wreck happened on the back stretch with Austin. So, um, you know, I feel like we had a good car and, and that was a gutsy call. We probably didn't have the car to win, but we gave ourselves a shot and that's all you can ask for. Yeah. And uh, as I said, you backed it up at Bristol, right. showed the top five there and now, uh, wrapping up here looking ahead to talladega uh <laughs> I, I know you said earlier you wish it was five years ago and we were running yeah. two 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 by two here but uh do you feel like you go into any plate race and you've got a shot like any driver probably feels yeah i do approach this season a little differently though yeah um last season i knew that basically we had to win a restrictor plate race if we were going to make the chase we weren't good enough at the mile and a half so even if we didn't have any mistakes we were going to run 25th you know or 20th maybe a 15th every now and then. But, um, so I knew when I went to Talladega Daytona, I had to do everything. I mean, I had to go get a win, basically be aggressive as humanly possible to get a win. This time going to Talladega, I say, all right, your cars are good enough at the mile and a half to one miles, even the short tracks, Bristol, um, to race your way in like Ryan Newman does every year. Like, you know, some of the other guys that are really, Jamie McMurray does a good job points racing. And um, if I look at it at Talladega, that's the one where you have your biggest chance of a point swing there in right. Daytona. So I say, you know what? We got to remember our goals. We got to remember that we want to run top 15 every weekend. Let's do that first. If it gets down to 10 to go and I've got a shot to win, I'm going to be aggressive yeah. and try to get the win like anybody else. Cause that obviously basically punches your ticket into the chase and it's a win. Um, and so I'm going to fight for that win. But if we don't have the chance to get a win, you got to be smart and you got to minimize, you know, the damage and points while you're there. Um, so for me, a top 15 at Talladega, just like going to Richmond, you got to treat them the same. And then if the opportunity arises and you can make the opportunity to win, you go for it. Just like Carl Edwards this last weekend, wins are so important now. And they always have been. I mean, if you look at NASCAR drivers, basically the stat that you bring up is how many wins did they have in their career? And so, um, you know, we're going to go for it, but I am able to approach Talladega a little differently than last year. Right. Chase obviously is the goal this year. That's right. Clearly. Yeah. Yes, sir. All right. Well, we, we certainly wish you luck this weekend, Trevor. We appreciate you Thank being you. on here. Enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate it. Yes, sir. Danica. Hi, Nate. So I, I know that you haven't gotten behind the wheel yet, but this must be a special day. You're going to take a spin through the streets of Chicago in your number 10 Chevrolet. Do, do I have that correct? That's true. That will then mark my, uh, uh, that, would, that would then mark the occasion on at least having driven an Indy car and a stock car down the streets of Chicago because ah. back when I back when I started driving for Andretti Green Racing when it was called that um, I drove my Indy car down the streets of Chicago in uh, in my Motorola car and uh, did a bunch of media and everything so yeah Chicago my stomping okay. ground <laughs> yeah Illinois native and and part-time resident do you still have your your condo there I still do, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You... I don't come here as much as I'd like, but then again, it's only um, 46 degrees on the uh, car thermometer, and um, I don't want to be here when it's this cold. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I'm blame a fair you. weather friend. Yeah, I, I don't blame you. I think I'd prefer the Carolina Spring to the Chicago spring at the moment um so okay so this is not as cool then as i thought it would be if, if you've already done this in an indy car but i guess being it's your your current race car is it still kind of cool to i know nascar has done these things before where they 
they bring drivers through the streets of Las Vegas, up and down the Strip, or through um, Times Square, or New York. Do, do you enjoy this? Do you like the looks you get from pedestrians or whatnot when you're when you're driving through the streets of Chicago? And well, you're I, I brought up the point that we're driving from. I'm driving from Millennium Park to basically up to the Drake, which is Oak Street Beach area, and. Um, that's really far. It's not like I'm just driving a block. And so I'm driving like almost two miles. <laughs> so I don't know if we're going to get the right of way through the lights or if I'm going to have to stop and wait. But I can imagine that if I had to stop and wait, it's going to look pretty funny because the lead car and the chase car behind me are just going to be regular cars. I don't know if anyone will necessarily know that I'm in like some kind of caravan like uh, assembly line, but um, I'm sure that would probably catch some catch some looks. Yeah, that, that sounds like it. It possibly could get awkward. Uh, so yeah, you you probably want to stay in line then, and and you probably aren't going to make a detour then to go buzz by your your place by the river uh, on your way from Millennium Park. It's huh? probably not. It's, uh, <laughs> once I get up to Oak Street, I'll be a little closer than than I am in Millennium Park. But um, it's a uh, it's an in and out trip. Uh, this time, so gotcha. It's uh, it's it's um it's a it's a quick one. We'll wait for the weather to turn. Okay. Well, uh, I definitely want to talk about the the reason for this. I know that it's it's part of the race entitlement for the Chicago Land Race Weekend. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are sponsoring that you race. It, Nate. Don't <laughs> act like you didn't. You have Don't act like you weren't sure what it was. Oh, like how to pronounce it. You have you probably s- know the the theme song. I do. Do you? You're 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 a better person than I, Danica. Uh, <laughs> um, my knowledge of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles ends with Vanilla Ice doing that horrible Ninja Turtle rap song uh, for that movie that came out years ago. So um, you're you're going to have to help me and fill me in on. What you know about this promotion, you, you have someone named April O'Neill on your car. As a, as a turtle aficionado, I, I expect that you can tell me all about April O'Neill and, and what all that means. <laughs> well, I mean, I wouldn't call myself an aficionado. I am 34 years old. So um, <laughs> if, I was, if I was like, you know, four years old, I might know more about April. But, uh, but um, the important things that I know is that April is played by Megan Fox. Ah. Clutch. I mean... That that's that's someone trying to say you're Megan Fox for the day, um, which is incredibly flattering because I look about a tenth as good as she does. <laughs> um, she uh, and she's you know she's kind of the girl power of the group, and she um, she's uh, yeah she's going to be on the hood of the car, so um, the the turtles and and April, so um, yeah, it's appropriate. It's, I mean all the all the all the turtles are guys and. Then there's April, and so it's like going out on the track with all the all the other drivers of the turtles, and then there's me. Okay, and you're not going to sing us the song. <laughs> you're you're sure you don't want us to want to sing us the song right now. What's that? You sure you don't want to sing us the song right now? You sure you're you're, you're oh, good on Oh, I that? really don't. I okay. my voice is raspy. It's I haven't warmed up. I haven't <laughs> had my tea and my honey. Okay, that's that's legitimate excuse. Um, this is a Nickelodeon-themed promotion, I know, and I know that, that you've been a, a part of that in the past, uh, Danica, Nickelodeon, the Kids' Ch- Choice Awards. I know you've taken part in that mm-hmm. before, and I've, I've seen the way kids react to you when you've done things at the NASCAR Hall of Fame with, with helping with their, their Cheetah Club and, and doing the autographs, mm-hmm. and kids really react to you. I mean, kids dig you. Um, wh- why, oh. do you wh- why do you think that is? That re- that makes me that reminds me of when I was leaving. Um, I was in Indianapolis um, uh, at my parents' house, and my mom watches my sister's little girl Reese um, three days a week when she works. My sister works, and um, so Reese was uh, out by the car when I was leaving, and she said, "Take me with." I want to go. Don't go. I want to go with you. I want to go with you. <laughs> so if she was a little older and had seen Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and she could kind of, you know, not need so much help, uh, I would have maybe taken her. But um, but yeah, I do love kids. I, I they're they're fun. They are they are kind of uncensored. They um, yet they're somehow they're uncensored yet still very polite I mean, they're, in their honesty. It's, I guess maybe as we get older, we actually get more censored, but more mean too at the same time. <laughs> so <laughs> kids are just kind of pure and innocent and, um, you know, they just, uh, they just want to have fun. 
so, uh, you know, when I'm, whenever I'm at the track, I always make an effort to do more, for, do as much as I can for the kids. Um, they also can't um, digest what's going on at the racetrack as easily as parents. They just want to come meet me, and so if they don't, if they see me and they don't meet me, then they potentially feel bad, and an adult might be able to say she was busy, she was in a rush, she didn't, she just missed me, but a kid might not be able to think all those things. So, you know, I try to make an extra effort when I'm around them to, uh, to, to take time. Right. Right. And, and that the connection you, you seem to have with them, do you think it's that kids see you as something unique in racing? They see you as aspirational. They see you as a woman competing in a man's world. I know that's probably all those things might be on what, what, what a child might be able to, to understand, but th- there must be something to that. I would think that I think it's because I'm their size. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it could be that too. I actually really do think it's because I'm small. It's um, <laughs> but then I, I do. Um, yeah. But other than that, I think that too that I'm probably someone that their parents have potentially pointed out to 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 tell them a good story about. You know, you can do anything you want. Look, there's the girl out there, and just because you're a girl doesn't mean you can't do whatever you want to do and do stuff that boys do. And so they've probably talked about me before and used me as an example to to tell their kids that they can do anything that they want to do. And, you know, that might create a little bit more of a, an interest than um, to, uh, to maybe maybe they don't believe them. Maybe they have to see it to believe it. And so then they point me out. Um, so, you know, I'm not 100% sure because I don't, I don't know what these kids get told or what they see. But there's also other times where um, they're, in, I mean, we've all, we all know this, that kids are very impressionable and um, at times – I'll be out in public and I can see a kid telling their parents that that's me. Hmm. Like I can see him saying like pointing, like, cause they don't have quite the um, cool, cool skills of an adult of like whispering and turning away. So they'll like literally point at you and be like that, you know, and you can hear out loud them telling their parents that it's me. And um, so they, they also, um, they also see and recognize me um, unprompted. So that's also really cool. And I really don't know where that comes from. Yeah, it is cool. And uh, I'm sure that for the people who are trying to, to market NASCAR de- these days, that's that's something that they like to hear. Because uh, as you know, Danica, there's been a lot of talk about how does NASCAR hook the younger fan base? Do, do you think a promotion like this, do, is this something that helps? Are, are there other ways that NASCAR should be looking at, at attracting kids? Or is it, it just putting a, a cartoon on a car and on a race? Is this, is this a good way to start? Sure, I think it's a great idea. I think that um, you know, just like myself or any of us tend to do things that we grow up doing or that our parents exposed us to. So, you know, watching a race because there's a car with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles on it might get them to watch it. Um, you know, then if Nickelodeon puts a, puts a, uh, um, you know, a show out that has, you know, a cartoon that has race car drivers and they drive NASCAR and they, you know, things like that, I think it could generate an interest because that's what they grew up watching. Um, just like I grew up watching She-Ra, so I wanted to be She-Ra when I grew up. <laughs> All right, I watched a little bit of He-Man when I was a, when I was a kid, but please don't don't share there that with it anybody. Is. See, yeah. I knew there was some cartoon in your past. Maybe Voltron too. I, I'm sort of familiar with She-Ra, but maybe not as much. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> making a rather awkward segue from cartoons to uh, NASCAR. You had Tony Stewart back at the track this past weekend at Richmond. Um, what was that like? Uh, I, I know he's been around as a, as a team owner, but having him back in the car, having him back in those debriefs, what was it like this past weekend? Like, um, like old hat. I mean, you know, it almost felt more weird that there was three of us on, you know, at Monday meetings and things like that. Um, to not have all four, it almost seemed more weird that way than it seemed weird to have him back. So. Um, I'm sure he's relieved and excited to just not only be back, but just be healed. I mean, he's gone through a lot, um, both mentally and, of course, physically. So, you know, I'm sure he's just happy to feel good. So, um, you know, it was, um, it was, it felt good and easy and normal to have him back. And I'm excited for him. I, I really, you know, I respect him so much as not only an owner, but a driver. And I want to see him have a, a great year because it's his last year. Right. Right. Uh, and he seemed very happy. He seemed like he had, he had a decent result. Uh, all uh, the, the Stuart Haas cars 
I think ran fairly well, uh, and it, it seems as if that's that's been the case. But I, you know, mostly the season. But I know that you still probably aren't getting the results that you want, even though the cars yeah. appear to be running better. Was it to be expected, Danica? I mean, you got a new crew chief, so I know there's got to be some sort of transitory learning period there. Did yeah. you did you think that was going to happen? I I mean, you can always expect that there'll be a transition. I I would have hoped to have started off a little bit better than what we did, but. I think as a team, we need to find some sheer speed. We need to find a little bit of that initial speed, which will not only help with, you know, most importantly for me, it'll help with qualifying. Um, but but then on the early parts of the run, restarts and things like that, I think that as I know at least on the, on the 10 car, our long run speed has been pretty good all year. Um, there's been very few times that we, uh, you know, the wheels fall off the car and I can't, you know, I'm going backwards in a hurry on a long run. Um, that's usually been more of the strength. So I think that, you know, we need, we do need to do some work and that's, that's always a challenge when you start when you don't have a good qualifying and you don't take off really well, that's the easiest time to pass cars and you can pick them off one by one in a run, but you know, then all of a sudden at some point in time, you're going to have a bunch of restarts and you know, you're kind of back to where you were. So, um, we just gotta, we gotta work on some speed. Um, I'm not super worried about the long run right now, so that's good, but um, we got to qualify better, and we have to, you know, get more cars on the start. New crew, new crew chief is Billy Scott. I, I haven't had a chance to talk to him yet, but I have watched a little bit of the interaction between you and him. It seems like you guys have built a good rapport. I saw you guys at the at the Supercross together in Atlanta, and it, it seemed as if it, it was working well in terms of just just chemistry. Can you can you speak to that at all? Does it seem like it's going well, and that you and Billy are on the yeah, same page? Yeah, you're yeah. totally reading it right. I along with him great we um have very regular and great communication um so i mean it's it's not from a lack of trying and talking and you know going through the car and what it's doing and communicating it's not that it's just you know needing to to work on the car and needing to just get some time i mean there's you know there's so so much you can do before just that that time and experience together pays off. And I think that it's also been a little bit challenging this year because the first time I got in the car with him as my crew chief was Daytona and it was race weekend. So, you know, it's, there was zero testing before the year started and we've done one test. We did one test at, at Richmond a few weeks ago and that's the only test day we've done. And so not only have we had no time, but we've also really had very little time with the new downforce package and with the new rules. So, um, it's kind of been, you know, good for the people who who it serves well without testing. Um, so, or who have done other kinds of testing or have developed other things. So, I think that it's been a kind of a double whammy year with the new crew chief and no testing and new rules to develop a package that works for me too. You know, just I feel like I'm I I tend to be able to repeat once I've gotten to a certain point with the car on speed or a weekend or just you know, running. And if, if I, if I, if I don't get there, I don't just go out and hold it wide open and see what happens. I build up to it. So, you know, if a car doesn't feel comfortable, I'm, you know, I'm not going to muscle it for one lap and throw it, you know, get it up the board and then, you know, not know how I did it. Right. Right. I mean, cause essentially incremental steps are better than trying to make a big leap when you're trying to improve in racing. Right. Well, I mean, you definitely need the track time, and if you do things that reduce your track time because you're making mistakes and you're hurting right. yourself, and and that's not my style anyway. I'm 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 a more methodical driver. Right, right. Uh, this weekend, Talladega Super Speedway, which of course will be completely different than anything you've experienced since Daytona. I know the Joe Gibbs Racing Toyotas were, were fairly dominant there, but uh, mm. your your Chevrolet has, has been strong at Daytona and Talladega in the past. I know you've led at Talladega in the past. You're usually a factor on the plate races. Uh, how do you feel going into into Sunday? How do you like your chances this week? Hey, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful every weekend. Um, I feel like the car was not very fast at Daytona, but I think in the race, the car was very comfortable. So, um, you know, we, maybe there's some kind of a compromise there, but, um, but definitely, um, it's, you know, important that the car is comfortable in the race that handling is becoming more and more of an issue on the, on the plate tracks. I feel like, uh, as time goes and, um, maybe a little bit more at Daytona than Talladega, but still at the same time, you need the car to be comfortable and it'll probably be warm there and the car will be slipping, sliding around a little bit more. So, um, a well handling car allows you to put it wherever you need to put it, whether it be 
four wide on the top or running right through the middle or making a new lane, whatever it is, you know, you need to be able to be confident to drive it in and not have to list for, you know, the back one to come around on you or the front taking off. The, the Toyotas were able to work so well together at Daytona, Danica. Do you think that there'll be more of teamwork discussions among the Chevy teams, four teams, among the other teams? Because it just seemed like they just had a plan and stuck to it, even to the point of where if you if they had to subjugate themselves to another driver just to put that driver in the lead, it seemed like they were able to yeah. do that. Well, I think part of that is they're fast enough to be able to sort of run the show. Right. And if you're not all fast enough to be able to be together, then a plan tends to confuse things more than anything. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll find ourselves in a situation where we'll be working together to all stay up front. Right, right. Uh, last thing for you, lug nuts, a big discussion this week and last <laughs> week. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> mostly thanks to I your, your teammate fifth. and co-owner. I, you I, plead I, the fifth. <laughs> I can't, I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to say anything because I don't know what gets you fined these days and what doesn't. So Yikes. I think it's the fifth. Is that the right? Is that plead the fifth? Isn't that the, the you, you hit it right. The, I, the only thing I was going to ask you is just, I mean, does it, does it matter to you if there are five or four or three, or does a driver just worry about, Hey, I'm, I'm driving the car. And if I try I to worry know. about other stuff, it doesn't matter. I mean, I, people have come in for loose wheels. I don't know if a wheel's actually fallen off, but at the same note, why do you, why do you spend time, energy, money on improving the safety of things when you could, when you took away something that was about safe. I mean, bug nuts is better. I mean, it's, you know, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's got to be safer, right? I mean, if, if there's one, one direction to go with the other, it's definitely got to be safer. So, you know, they reduced the amount of, you know, they reduced um, a safety point. Um, so, and I guess the question is why? I mean, was it to reduce, you know, was it a cost thing about people like, you know, employees and having more people on pit lane or was it, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really know. I'm not going to get too far into it again. I, I don't know what gets you fined these days and what doesn't. I've found my way to get plenty of fines lately. So, um, <laughs> I just drive the number 10 nature's bakery car. All right. Good job getting the sponsor plug in at the very end. Uh, as always, appreciate your time, Danica. Don't get lost right. on Michigan Avenue and good luck driving around the streets of Chicago. Thanks, Nate. Okay, now we're joined by my colleague, Dustin Long, the editor of NASCAR Talk. Dustin was at Richmond International Raceway this past weekend. And Dustin, a lot of storylines coming out of this race, obviously a a thrilling finish and uh, somewhat controversial one as well with with Carl Edwards bumping Kyle Busch as Joe Gibbs Racing teammate aside to get the win. What what did you make about the aftermath? I, I know obviously you were there in the pits and you were there for the winner's news conference. You you saw how how Joe Gibbs Racing reacted to all of it. Where, where do you think it goes from here? Well, I'll tell you, one of the things that really kind of stood out to me was in the press conference when, you know, Joe Gibbs talked about, you know, there isn't a set game plan on how to go from here when you have a teammate bump another teammate out of the lead like that for the win. And and, I, and, I, and the reason I thought that was interesting was because, I mean, here's a guy in Joe Gibbs with, in his previous career in coaching. He's had to deal with a multitude of, of, of different personalities and people that liked each other and didn't like each other in the locker room, but try to bring them together for the cohesiveness of the team to have success on the field. And so, uh, you know, obviously in one way he's right in that there's no one way to do it, but I thought it was interesting just in, in just you know, he he was happy for the win, but you know, also you know, you could feel a little bit, you could see a little bit of the weight of uh, of what had happened with two car, two of his cars having contact. And when you look forward, I think it, I think it is an interesting dynamic because the next race now is the series goes to Talladega Super Speedway. You think back to uh, the Daytona 500 this year, where all four Gibbs cars and the Toyota teammate of uh, Furniture Row with Martin Truex Jr. How well they worked together throughout that race, especially the last 40 laps when Matt Kenseth led most of the way until the last mile. And going into the last lap, the Gibbs cars and Truex, the five Toyota cars, were in the top five spots. And so they worked together to control the front of the field. And so it may be a little bit more challenging for them to be able to have that, to exert that type of control through the same situation as Talladega because it's a wider track. It's harder to block in one sense, but, uh, uh, you know, after, you know, just, you know, think about this days after getting knocked out of the way by his teammate in the last lap, Kyle Bush may have to work with his teammate, Carl Edwards, for the good of the organization. 
um, come Sunday if they're in a similar situation to what happened in the Daytona 500. So, you know, if the next race was Kansas, and again, and this is still a big issue, but they're not having to work together as closely as what they may have to on, on Sunday. And it's just kind of a, an interesting dynamic after what happened uh, at Richmond. Well, it strikes me about it, Dustin, is it, it's not as if this is new for, for Joe Gibbs. I, th- I think it's it's easy to forget, like, I mean, not just with the, the current lineup of drivers, but go back even 10 years ago to the first couple of seasons with Denny Hamlin and Tony Stewart working together. I can remember Joe Gibbs interrupting a vacation uh, to go to the track to ensure that things were right between Tony Stewart and Denny Hamlin after they had had a mix up at, at Daytona, a little bit of an incident there. So. I, I, I think I mean you were there for Gibbs's news conference saying he has to put the brave face on and 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 act as if hey we're we're gonna we're gonna handle this it's gonna be okay but it, I, I think it's almost old hat to him that he probably doesn't even see it as being a big deal. And, and again, it, it may not be because of his experiences in sports. I think the one thing you kind of wonder about is is the just the explosive nature of of, of Kyle Busch and look I, I think Kyle Busch is professional enough. That he'll put it aside, and and uh, and and you know it's just kind of like what Dave Rogers, crew chief for Carl Edwards, said. You know, basically, hey, there's going to come a time when the 18 cars faster than us, they're going to get to our back bumper, and they're going to move us out of the way, and we're going to walk over to victory lane and shake their hand and congratulate them. I mean, you know, I, I think they see it in that sense. Now, uh, I think there's probably you know an additional frustration for Kyle because this is the fifth time since 2007 he's gotten beat on a last lap pass, and um, I think it's what him and Kansas, I think, have been uh, have had the most times they've been beat on the last lap of a race for whatever reason. So, uh, you know, that's that's obviously a stat you don't like to lead in. Um, you know, with with the, the run he's been on and wanting to continue that run, um, I, like I said, I gotta understand the frustrations. I think he'll. I then I don't think there'll be any issues with working with Carl this this weekend if they have to. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think Carl pretty much knows it and, and, and Kyle does. I think we all do that, that, you know, another short track or another situation where you can have some contact if, if Kyle does it, as long as Carl doesn't, you know, slam into the wall, I think everybody's going to be okay with it. Another driver that, that Carl almost had some contact with during the Richmond race was Tony Stewart, who I, I think in many ways, it, it was a quintessential Tony Stewart kind of kind of weak, Dustin. From the time, the day before he announces his comeback, he's he's blasting NASCAR about the lug nut issues and his first media availability, extensive media availability in quite a while. Uh, I think he knew then, obviously, he was probably going to be announcing the next day that he was going to be coming back to NASCAR. I don't know if he thought he was going to be earning a $35,000 fine because of his comments, but I think he certainly was was you know feeling his presence again, as being one of the stars with the most sway in the Cup Series, not just as a driver, but also as an owner. And then during the the course of the race weekend, I, you wrote this in your, your column on NBCSports.com slash NASCAR, that he just seemed to just being in, to enjoy himself. I mean, I, I guess, you know, you miss the first eight races of the season. Naturally, you come back and you're going to be in a different frame of mind. But as someone like yourself, Dustin, who's covered him, for so long, who has been there since the beginning, when he came into NASCAR in 1999, we always know and celebrate to some extent that fiery side of his personality. But there's that other side of him that just loves racing and and truly would do this for nothing and truly would just race at nondescript tracks around the country uh, if if that's what what his life meant. If 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 that was the, the the pathway toward racing a car every week, and I feel like your column kind of really indicated that. That's I it felt like that was the Tony Stewart we saw Sunday. Yeah, it was it was it was so weird um, because he was this this just he was almost like a kid in the car because just throughout the race he's he's talking about how much fun he's having he's, and he's making quips with the team and again at the time he's running like you know somewhere between twentieth and twenty second twenty third where you know a few years ago a Tony Stewart twentieth or twenty second in in a race you know he's he's screaming at his crew or he's angry or screaming at somebody I mean he's not happy. And so, and yeah, I, I understand because it's his first race back. He hasn't been in a car since Homestead. He got hurt in, in the sand, on the sand rail car on sand dunes in, in late January. So that's kind of changed his perspective. But, it, you know, what was what I really found fascinating is when he had on the restart, uh, I think it was a lap 275 or so, the restart where he had the contact with Logano and then it led to a tire rub and led to his tire going down. It's just like, you know, I immediately jump on the on his radio with my scanner. I'm like, okay. 
let's hear Tony. You know, uh, Tony's uh, Tony's been in a good mood all day. What, uh, what is, is this going to be bad, Tony? And and Tony was calm about it. And then for him to tell the story afterwards about you know after he pits and comes back out on the track for the restart and Logano got the uh, the free pass, so he starts at the back with him. Stewart sees Logano and puts his hand out the window to Logano. Okay, well, what what are you thinking? Ninety nine percent of the time in a situation like that, but instead Stewart says, "Hey, look, I put my hand out and gave him a thumbs up." Says, "Hey, that was cool." Just the fact that he liked the contact, just how much he missed, and it, it was really fascinating. And and you know, he was asked, you know, did you did you enjoy everything with being back? He says, "Well, mostly the racing, I enjoyed it. You know, some of the other stuff I did." And you know, I think that's certainly an allusion to you know, alluding to you know the the, the controversy, the fine, and and the political stuff, which he can always do with that. Like he said, you know, he'll, he's just as fine racing anywhere at, at any nondescript track in the country. And and he was all excited that after his run, he was, uh, you know, he was jumping on an airplane to go up to watch the All Stars uh, sprint cars race in Pennsylvania and sign autographs. So, um, you know, I, I I think his his personality will change. After Talladega, obviously, he'll only start the car. Ty Dillon will replace him so they can protect him. His back, Tony said that was part of the agreement with the, with the doctors with letting him come back to race Richmond. But I think coming, you know, coming back to Kansas full-time, you know, when there's, if there's contact or things that upset him, I think you're going to hear that a lot more, and he's going to be more vocal on things. There were a couple times where he kind of got a little bit upset on the radio, kind of wondering about these debris cautions that seemed to come out when he was just one car away from from being in that free pass position, but for most of the day, um, it you know it was uh, it, it was so weird. This is this will be a bizarre reference, and maybe you can help me out. But, but for some reason, recently I was watching Police Academy, and I hadn't seen it in such a long time. But what was it? The uh, uh, they're doing the the driving scene, the driver's test. There was a, there was a female officer uh, who, uh, who, who, who did not project herself. Well, she was a small officer and shows her just driving around at a very lollygagging casual pace and singing to herself. And I almost kind of have that image of Tony. That's how happy and how good, how, how, how much it meant to be back in the car is that it didn't matter what was going on outside it, that, uh, you know, he was just enjoying being in the car, racing, having contact, trying some moves, you know, the multiple lanes and things like that. But I think everything else didn't matter as much. Again, you know, come Kansas when and he's in the car full time again, I, I think you'll see a different Tony because he knows his days are limited in, in this in this series and this opportunity to get another win or have more success. But uh, I mean it was it was it was just it was fun Tony. Uh, yeah, you could say yep. on, sun, yep. on Sunday. A peaceful Sunday drive, which sort of again belied everything that surrounded him in, in the days <laughs> before that, which again is what we've come to expect with him. And we'll definitely uh, be keeping an eye on that this weekend at Talladega Super Speedway. Dustin and I both will be there uh, covering the race on Sunday. So be sure to uh, watch uh, NBCSports.com slash NASCAR for all your NASCAR coverage this weekend from Talladega. Uh, Dustin, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. I'm Steve Letart, STP auto expert and former crew chief. I know what it takes to keep engines performing at their best. STP's latest breakthrough additive, STP Ultra 5-in-1 plus Fuel System Cleaner plus Fuel Stabilizer delivers three times the amount of cleaning agents versus premium gasoline and helps keep fuel fresh during storage. For over 60 years, STP has been on the cutting edge developing products to help engines run better, longer. One bottle contains three times by weight the amount of cleaning agents compared to 20 gallons of the leading premium gasoline. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.